0: So, Robert, how did we get where we are today in Ukraine?
1: Well, I think there are multiple uh, factors involved there, involving both Western policy and also uh, Putin's character. Let's start with Western policy. I think that uh, for the last 30 years, uh, NATO in particular, but the U.S. and its other allies have made some pretty fundamental mistakes. In the early 1990s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we had negotiations with Yeltsin and his colleagues, and we agreed that they had valid security concerns about uh, the state of affairs in Eastern Europe. Um, in particular, we said that we would not expand NATO past, I can't remember if it was uh, West, East Germany or it was Poland, but we committed ourselves to not expanding NATO to the point where it would be close to Russia and hence cause political problems, geopolitical problems there. We, of course, didn't do that. Um, By the mid-2000s, we had, well, er, earlier than that, in the 1990s, we came up with the idea of partnership for peace, which was to allow these countries a kind of intermediate status before they joined NATO, if they would. Then that went away, and we just started expanding NATO further and further to the east, to the point where now several NATO countries, particularly in the Baltic region, um, border on Russia. And that is something that we had promised we would never do. Also, in 2008, the West announced that Georgia and Ukraine were likely going to be admitted to NATO at some point in the future. And frankly, I don't see how any Russian government could be comfortable with that. The notion of American troops and American alliances in bordering countries of extreme strategic interest to Russia. I think any Russian ruler would be um, upset about that. And that it was stupid of us to act like the whole world was going to accept that. The other part of this, though, is that um, we failed along the road to suggest that we would not tolerate abusive behavior by Putin's government. Meaning, if NATO was a threat where we messed up, we also messed up on the other side of not showing that we would react harshly to Russian aggression. We can go over the list. Uh, the Georgian invasion, where Georgia was destroyed, much like Ukraine is now. Um, Syria, where uh, the Russians uh, you know, helped uh, Assad use chemical weapons against his own people. Then during the Trump administration, the Americans allowed the uh, Russians to destroy um, our uh, allies, the, Kur- the Kurdish forces. We didn't do anything. Um, Uh, Obama said there was a red line if they ever used uh, chemical weapons. They used chemical weapons. There was no response. Uh, The United States uh, did not do anything when China violated its treaty obligations and took over Hong Kong decades before it was supposed to. Um, Then we uh, tucked tail and ran from Afghanistan as if we didn't care about our allies there. So if you're sitting in Moscow and you happen to be a a paranoid um, sociopath, You look around and say, hey, the West doesn't react to any of this stuff. So Putin you know, is someone who we know has always had imperial ambitions. He sees the West showing great disrespect to him and his country for 20, 30 years. He also sees that the West is not doing anything to enforce its threats. It's a good time to step forward. And he had every reason to think that what he wanted to do in Ukraine was possible. So I think what we have here is a, uh, uh, is a grave threat to the international order in Putin, who finds support from China, sees that the West does not respect him, wants to break NATO because NATO is now a threat to his security, and also wants to go down in history as a man who revivified the Russian
0: Empire. Um, that's how we got here. And so where does that, where's that landed us now?
1: Well, um, at the beginning of the war, as you and I have talked about, um, I think a negotiated settlement was possible. Um, when the Russians invaded, um, they invaded from the East, from Belarus coming South and then from the, uh, Sea of Azov coming North. um, there was a point at which we could have sat down with Putin and said, OK, uh, you're right. Um, we should not uh, have designs on um, Ukraine entering NATO. Um, we recognize that that's a threat to you. And if you will agree to uh, a deal with, uh, um, with the Ukraine, probably whereby uh, the Ukraine um, agrees to neutrality, doesn't join NATO. Um, has limits on its military forces, and perhaps makes some concessions about the Crimea, which used to be Russian until 1964, when Khrushchev assigned it arbitrarily to Ukraine, maybe the war could have ended there. Um, but we're way past that point. And I think the reason is that um, Putin is, a, is an opportunist. He creates a situation. Um, he doesn't necessarily have a distinct war aim. He probably has five or six different aims. And depending on what becomes possible, he'll take what he can get. But what that means is that um, if you show weakness to him, he's likely to aim for more rather than less. In any case, the possibility of a negotiated settlement has gone out the window, I think, because of the way that he's chosen to prosecute the war with the, a scorched earth policy and the absolute devastation of some of these cities. Because... Now, if he is allowed to survive, um, if he is allowed to maintain the gains he's achieved in the Ukraine, any Ukrainian government that's in power thereafter is going to be terrified of Russia and essentially function as as a puppet of Russia. So then you would have Belarus and Ukraine so afraid of Russia or cooperating so closely with Russia that it's the same thing as if they had been reincorporated with the Empire. And then the Ukraine the uh, Baltic countries and Poland and Moldova and some others are going to have to fear that he will do the same thing. The truth is that if there's a horrific military action and the aggressor is allowed to keep his gains then countries nearby are going to be afraid of him they're not going to trust the West to support them. So we're now in a situation where we cannot allow... Putin to step away with a victory here.
0: So where does then, what's the resolution? This is a a terrible situation right now, horrific for the Ukrainians. How is this then going to resolve? If there's no negotiated settlement possible, does one side have to win and one side have to lose? And how, if Putin loses, what does that look like?
1: Obviously, a binary situation is a bad one. You always want your enemy to have a way out. Problem is that Putin has burned his um, exit ramps uh, by uh, implementing so many atrocious policies, killing so many innocent people that it's hard for the West uh, to give him an off ramp. So I think what has to happen is that Ukraine has to be supplied with enough weaponry that they can really hurt Russia. Russia has to be forced to back down. Um, Maybe that involves some marginal concessions to Russia. Uh, but I think that that's what the West has to, to hold out for now. The problem with that is it means that um, a lot more Ukrainians are going to die. And I think the big risk is that Putin attempts or to bring in um, weapons of mass destruction one way or another. Now, we can act like you know that's unthinkable and it's horrible, but the truth is that we've tolerated it already. Um, Putin has been using weapons of mass um, destruction, meaning... Um, biological poisons to kill people in different parts of Europe, around the world, uh, particularly in Millennium Hotel in in the UK. And the West has allowed that. We have not said that's the use of of banned weaponry, and we're going to impose a penalty for that. Likewise, in Syria, the Russians were complicit, and probably more than complicit, in uh, Hafez al-Assad's use of chemical weapons. He's been doing it. And we've tolerated it. We've said these actions are below the level which will require a response from us. There's going to be a very strong temptation for him to do the same thing with nuclear weapons. We're now saying any use of nuclear weapons is unacceptable. But we said that with the red line in Syria. So I think he's got a good reason to believe that he can probably get by with using um, some low-level nuclear weapons, whether they're tactical or simply the release of uh, some radioactive poison. I mean, so I think that that's, um, that's, that's become possible, and the West has to decide, are we going to tolerate it or not? Is um, damage to Chernobyl that releases nuclear waste and kills a lot of people, ruins a lot of lives in Eastern Europe, is that enough to justify <clears throat> Excuse me, a nuclear war that risks New York? And I think Putin will be tempted to, to test our resolve. We have to have an answer that is acceptable, not just to the United States, but to the countries in Europe that would face the threat of limited use of nuclear weaponry, broadly defined. So I think that that's a major issue that we have to deal with. Also important is the implications of all this for China. If the United States and the West gets bogged down in a long-term conflict with Russia, um, our ability to check Chinese aggression in Taiwan or elsewhere, the South China Seas, becomes more limited. I think that that's something that uh, we have to bear in mind, too, that um, we have to manage this war in a way which allows us, or enables us to maintain um, deterrent forces in East Asia. Um, and obviously, what's interesting here is that with this visit of uh, members of Congress to Taiwan were violating the agreements that we reached in the Shanghai Communique. Um, There were a series of private secret agreements that were not uh, announced in the Shanghai Communique, and those included the fact that the United States was going to treat Taiwan as if it wasn't an official entity, and therefore that official government uh, representatives, including congresspeople, would not be allowed to visit Taiwan. Uh, China's aggression in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years towards its neighbors, its actions in Xinjiang, threats to Taiwan, the way it's handled Hong Kong, um, have obviously emboldened um, a lot of people to say, okay, we're just not going to live up to our old commitments. So that means that we have uh, burgeoning problems with China. I think China is going to be watching very carefully to see if the West is so preoccupied with uh, the Ukraine that it has more... Um, uh, leeway to take aggressive action in East Asia. So I think that's a major issue that we have to think about.
0: Okay, so now uh, Sweden and Finland have announced that they're going to join NATO. That could happen momentarily. Could that be a tripwire? And what what does this situation mean in terms of Western unity?
1: Sweden and Finland have not announced that they're going to join NATO. They have announced that they're going to apply for membership. And then NATO's got to decide whether to let them in. I'm not sure it's in anybody's interest to do that, particularly with regard to Finland. You'll recall that after World War II, um, the uh, erstwhile allies agreed to the neutralization of Austria, and that was the foundation of the decision by Russia to withdraw, Soviet Union to withdraw its troops from Austria. Finland was also neutralized. And since then, you know, both Austria and Finland have stuck with neutrality through the present because it's a good deal. It's a good deal. Um, if there were forces, nuclear forces, NATO forces in Finland, and a crisis emerged, now uh, Russia would be much more likely to take aggressive action against Finland. So, Yes, those countries are asking for membership. Uh, NATO may be inclined to grant it. I think that they, the West should think very seriously about that, and I, that also includes the Ukraine. Is it really in Ukraine's interest to have Western troops 450 miles from Moscow? I'm not sure that it is. Having a a um, uh, a, uh, a buffer state, a defensive glacis through uh, Eastern Europe, East Central Europe. Um, that reduces the immediacy of a threat to Russia from NATO and vice versa, um, has always been a good idea. And we have stumbled into a situation where we've gotten rid of a lot of that. That was a mistake. And I'm not sure that in the heat of the moment, uh, letting Finland in um, or some of the other countries that we're talking about is a great idea for NATO.
0: So in lieu of troops on the ground, uh, we are trying the economic weapons, sanctions, how is that working out? Do you think that it's a matter of time before Russia starts to react to these sanctions? Or can they exist with with the support of China and the Global South? Can they exist indefinitely without the West?
1: I I don't know that there's an answer to that. You know, North Korea is a country that sanctions its own citizens um, through its economic policy. It keeps them entirely, you know, we can't really do much more to hurt North Korea because they're hurting themselves incredibly already. And that hasn't endangered the regime. Um, Obviously, Russia is a more complex society with better access to information. But uh, most cases in history where sanctions have worked, I'm thinking of South Africa, They've had to be held in place for a very long time. And ultimately, it was domestic decisions um, based by a government that could have continued to exist the way that it was that made the difference. So um, will the, are, are sanctions having an effect? Yes. Are they affecting Putin? I think they absolutely are. He has to be worried that if news of more dead soldiers keeps coming back to Russia, and uh, living standards fall in Russia. Sooner or later, people are going to get angry at him. Uh, I don't know if that will have a, defect, a decisive effect or not. Um, it may kind of encourage other people to um, show Mr. Putin the exit, um, which would be great. But I, so I do think I'm not sure where, where the sanctions lead us. Hopefully, they're definitely increasing pressure. I would definitely continue to increase the sanctions. I'm not sure that that solves the problem. Regarding sanctions more generally, um, I think it would be a mistake to assume from their use now that they're going to be a major part of international relations going forward. Because the truth is that various countries have very different interests. Um, And we may say, well, look, the government of Germany right now is willing to do this. Therefore, we can move forward. I think we have to think a little further past that. Like, all right, what happens if Germany imposes strict sanctions, inflation rate goes up, uh, cost of uh, energy goes way higher? How do the German people vote in two years or four years? Will they turn against sanctions? Will they divide the Western alliance and stop us from continuing to impose sanctions on Russia? That's a real possibility. If you look at France and the uh, uh, success of Le Pen, for example, you can see that France is not united behind this at all. Um, you know, I don't know if it's 40% or 50% of French who would be willing to let Russia continue to trade with them or not, but it's a significant number. And those numbers tend to rise. Sanctions are not only the victim of the sanctions, but also the countries imposing the sanctions. And that is a, something that we really have to be aware of, that Russia is going to try to divide uh, the Western alliance. And there are parties in Western countries, including France, including the United States, that would like to uh, improve relations with Russia, and to that end would be willing to reduce or eliminate the sanctions. So one of the key issues is how long can we hold these countries together, given that they're democracies and that their peoples may decide they don't want to continue with the sanctions. Stepping beyond that, all of those considerations also apply to prospective use of sanctions against other countries in the future. If we decided to sanction China for something, again, imposing sanctions against a very important country and maintaining those sanctions is a very difficult thing to do. So far, we've managed to do it in the Ukraine because the Ukraine is a unique threat to the West. It is in the heart of Europe. If, Soviet, if Russia takes it over... You'll have Russian troops on the border of Poland, only a few hundred miles from Germany, and the Baltic states are going to feel very anxious. So um, there are reasons why we're taking Ukraine so much more seriously than we have Georgia in 2008, Chechnya, where the same kind of acts of genocide occurred. Ukraine is unique. Most places around the world are not as important, and hence it'll be harder to build sanctions regimes against them and countries' commitments to those regimes will be more limited than they are now. And even now, we're seeing strains in Ukraine. So I think we have to remain objective in the way we think we can use sanctions going forward. This is an extreme case, it's extremely easy, and there are still threats arising in various countries.
0: So sanctions can go the other way. As far as I know, Russia has not returned the sanctions. What if Russia decided Um, to stop supplying energy to Europe, for example? Do you think that's a weapon that he might use?
1: No, I don't think there's any possibility. I mean, people are always doing this. They're saying, um, you know, usually the story is China buys so much of our debt that they could sanction us. But anybody who knows anything about Chinese economics knows that if they stop buying our debt, um, their currency would... They would, they'd be in a situation where their, their economy basically ground into the ground because if they don't buy our debt, we can't buy their output. The same thing is true with Russian oil. Um, we need Russian oil and gas, but um, Russians desperately need the income they generate from that, right? So they are trying everything they can to find other people to buy their oil and their, their, their gas, their hydrocarbons in general, um, so that they can maintain domestic stability and also continue to wage the war. I'm not worried about Russia sanctioning the West. I'm worried about cyber attacks. I'm worried about um, intimidation with threats of um, weapons of mass destruction. I am not worried about, I don't think Russia is in a position where it can sanction the West economically.
0: So that leads us to the global economy. What are the implications of all of this for the global economy? Are supply chains going to shift, for example, as a result of all this? Will growth slow? It seems it, that's a necessary thing that, that will happen. But am I right in that? How do you look at that, Robert?
1: Well, um, growth is definitely going to slow, and inflation is going to accelerate because uh, not only do we have the, you know sanctions reducing the uh, immediate accessibility of uh, uh, to Russian uh, hydrocarbons, um, you know the truth is that uh, parts of Russia and you know, Ukraine, Poland, places that produce huge amounts of uh, agricultural goods. Those goods are going to become. Uh, I mean, they're obviously the supply is going to be interrupted quite significantly for at least one year, maybe a few years. And with energy prices, which comprise most of the expense of delivering food, um, you know, people when they buy food at the supermarket are paying for energy, whether they know it or not. Higher energy costs plus a smaller supply of food means that inflation is going to continue. In, in all of our countries, and the same interruptions mean that global growth is going to slow down because people's disposable income will be eaten away by both the inflation and and, and uh, particularly the the trouble in the hydrocarbon markets and in um, and in, in foodstuffs. So that's a significant problem. Slower rate of global growth, more inflationary pressure, and of course that will feed into the politics because. Um uh, As those economic problems continue, uh, electorates in the various democracies are going to become less supportive. Um, energy diversification is an interesting issue, obviously, uh, the Germans have said well we 've learned our lesson we 're not going to depend so much on oil from russia we 're going to build some nuclear power plants." I think those statements were made without uh, adequate um, consideration of the views of the German people. I think Germans are not quite ready to do that. And I think once this is over, what will happen is, um, say that the war ended tomorrow. Um, uh, within a couple of months, Russian oil would be available again. Prices would fall. And when prices fall, investments in alternative energy sources always falls. So what happens is if you want diversification into other energy sources for whatever reason, uh, bigger supply, lower prices, um, uh, preservation of the, of, the, of the environment, then you really want high, high oil prices. Because that's the only time historically that those things have happened. Once oil price falls, just like in, the, uh, in uh, the upper Midwest in the United States over the last several years, when the oil price was sky high, those places were booming. As soon as the oil price fell, boom, you know, tumbleweeds. And that's going to be the same thing here. If, if um, the sanctions against Russia and the continued war keep Russian oil out of global markets, oil prices will be high. Uh, companies will invest a lot in other forms of energy, but if the sanctions disappear the um, interest in those in those in the diversification of sources is just going to disappear. It's going to be poof, and it's gone. So I think that's something important to bear in mind.
0: Yeah, people are trying to figure out now what are the lasting effects of the pandemic. Working from home, what are the the changes, societal changes? What do you think the last sooner or later this will end um, um, more or less happily? But when it does end, what, do you, what will persist as a result of this conflict?
1: I think what's going to change, the, the enduring change, is going to be this balkanization of the global economy. And by that, I mean that instead of uh, reducing global tariffs and uh, reducing global barriers to the flow of capital and technology companies have realized um, that you can't really trust the Chinese government to enforce laws. There's a cost to having all your supply capacity in, in China or in another country. Um, there's value in having at least some capacity in countries where rule of law is respected. So, and those are things that were happening before Ukraine, right? There were it was an increasing realization that Simply going to the cheapest places to get supply has proven to be a stupid thing to do. You need flexibility in your supply chain in case there's a disaster or political change in any one of those countries. That's a secular change. Ukraine comes along on top of that. And if it were just Ukraine, I would say that we would go back to the old globalization. But because those changes were already occurring, the impact of the Ukrainian crisis is likely to be prolonged and increased in magnitude. Because now what we see is a much more definite example of what happens when you're dependent, you're Germany, and you're dependent for half of your energy on exports from Russia. What that means is that um, if you have to impose sanctions against Russia to protect your own national security, your economy is in real trouble. So I think what this means is that countries are going to diversify even if the war ends because they were already headed in that direction. And the war has simply underscored the importance of having multiple sources of the various things that your companies need. Now, um, nuclear power. Uh, Yeah, I think there's going to be some more development of nuclear power. I think it's not going to occur particularly rapidly nor is it in the short term, say 10 or 15 years, going to influence global energy patterns very much. The reason is that China is already building as many nuclear power plants as they possibly can. And this is not going to increase the number of of plants that they put on the drawing board immediately, because they're already building at their maximum capacity. So China's not going to change very much. Germany says it's going to start building nuclear power facilities, but I think it's going to be very few, and it's going to take a lot of time. Same is true of Japan. If it decides to start building more power plants because of the memories of uh, what happened in 2011, I think that they'll be cautious and slow in the way that they do that. So I would say that, yeah, on the margin, you'll get a little bit more uh, investment in nuclear power. Um, Again, once the uh, cost of hydrocarbon falls after the war is over, interest in that form of electricity is likely to abate somewhat. The one area where uh, there is going to be a change in the nuclear field is, of course, security policy, because um, uh, what we've now seen is that it's really stupid not to have nuclear weapons, or at least weapons of mass destruction. There have been two countries that have surrendered their weapons or their weapons programs. Uh, Libya did it when they struck a deal with the West, the United States. And then there was a popular uprising in Libya, and Muammar Gaddafi went away, and even then, a lot of people looked around and said, hey, if he'd had nuclear weapons, he wouldn't have gone that way. He'd still be in power. Ukraine had nuclear weapons. They were under the control of Russia. So some people say, well, you know, uh, giving them up wasn't a big deal because they didn't have immediate control of them. I don't really agree. I mean, just having a nuclear weapon, um, a pile of nuclear material inside your borders, that's a nuclear weapon. Because... You can you can use that. You could poison people. You could you know just put a bunch of this waste or material in the tip of a rocket and send it somewhere, and you have a spread spread of nuclear weapons. It's a very low grade, low tech nuclear weapon. But we're seeing Russia do that with Chernobyl already. First thing they did when they invaded from Belarus was took control of Chernobyl, and they threatened the West by shooting some weapons at Chernobyl. Um, they've also done the same thing at one or two of the other nuclear facilities. So what they're doing is they're taking Ukrainian nuclear power plants and and implying to the West, oops, you know, if you piss us off, something here is going to happen. And then, you know, what are you going to do? Hope for good wins? So the point is that um, there is a value to having nuclear weapons in your territory, even if you don't have full control over them. And I think what people are going to realize from this episode is that, you know what, the only guarantee we have of our security both domestic and international, is to have weapons of, nu- of, of mass destruction. I do think that this episode in Ukraine is going to increase other countries' interest in developing these deterrent forces.
0: Uh, just doing some counterfactual history, though, I wonder if the nuclear weapons had remained, wouldn't Ukraine have remained a satellite that the Russians would have maintained control? They would have been the satellite state instead of what happened instead.
1: Well, Russia was, the, the, the Soviet empire was collapsing. Um, Yeltsin knew that he couldn't stop countries from getting their independence. So the question is, would a collapsing Soviet Union under a weak president have been willing to invade Ukraine? And I think the answer is no. I think the answer is, at that stage, there was really nothing that uh, Russia could do, uh, Soviet Union could do. So I I think that, you know, what they might have done is said, okay, well, we're going to, you know, uh, shut off the controls and and then there's nothing that Ukraine can do with them. Um, But again, you know, I mean, the worry back then was, well, if the Ukrainians have these things around, maybe they'll give some of this uh, nuclear material to, you know, the highest bidder. Terror. Right. So, you know, that's it. Right. But the threat of being able to supply terrorists is itself a, a military weapon. So I don't think Russia could have um, invaded and conquered uh, Ukraine safely at that point in time. Um, uh, they might not have, been, if, if Ukraine didn't cooperate, I think that they wouldn't have been able to get the missiles out, uh, at least a lot of them. Um, and just the presence of those, uh, uh, those things there is a threat. Um, perhaps the Ukrainians would have been able to learn how to, to manage them themselves. I don't know. Um, but, but uh, yeah, having, having uh, stockpiles of uh, uh, fissionable material and of nuclear waste is itself a deterrent capacity.
0: So last question, um, other than the nuclear industry, one way or the other, are there any other sectors that will benefit from the balkanization of supply chain by all of these changes? Where will the growth be? Even if overall growth slows down, there are going to be some sectors that are going to do well. Can you imagine what those might be?
1: Well, I think that any any, uh, company that has a supply chain that's disproportionately reliant on a small number of countries is going to have a strong incentive to uh, expand uh, its access to other suppliers. And therefore, there's going to be growth in those supply industries. You take a company like Apple, figure out which of their critical inputs are in countries where sanctions may be applied against them. And those, countries, those companies are going to try to find other places to, to, to build suppliers or to obtain supply. So those supply companies and the countries that control them are going to be in a good situation. The other element, which I think is interesting, is in risk management. Okay? Because um, if a company has assets in China or Russia and it needs to diversify, Um, It is likely, uh, it can't just go out and diversify uh, uh, kind of chaotically into places that are not safe. They're going to have to spend a lot of money hiring people who can figure out which countries are safe, what percentage of your um, investments should go into which places, what are your backup systems, because, of course, diversification is expensive. And so, there's going to be a, a cottage industry, and that's probably too kind of minimal a way to describe it. It's going to be an, a category of people who are experts on managing risk and managing supply chain risk. And part of that is going to be based on um, politics. Because um Again, if you take the, the example of China, a country where it's got a huge market, and it's very attractive, so everybody and their dog went and you know set up shop there, and then over time all these different limitations are imposed, contracts are ignored, um, uh, there's going to be an incentive to, even if you have to pay a higher price for it, to have critical supplies or at least the capacity in countries that have rule of law and that are generally on good terms with your government which suggests that the balkanization, and that may be too strong a word because what we're talking about is marginal change in a global system, um, is biased towards countries with rule of law and towards countries that have long-term friendly relations with your own country. And the management of that is at least as interesting a question as where the supplies are going to be um, obtained.